Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, looking at three chapters, or at least trying to in our time. We're not going to read all of them completely. I'm going to explain parts that we don't read. But we move from the very familiar story of David and Goliath to this section where we see complexity and confusion and envy and malice, and yet the Lord working through all of it. It struck me as we sung one verse of that him we just sang, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of your name, thy name, O Lord. We think of the Lord's name and fame and renown being made known when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt with the mighty arm of God and then brought into the land. And then an event like David and Goliath causing the nations around them to think something about who is this God of Israel, but think of the fame and renown of our God's name as it has gone throughout the whole earth so much in the last thousands of years since the coming of Christ. Well, we're going to try something a little bit different tonight. I'm going to tell you my three points before we read the first text that we're going to read. My first point is from chapter 18. We're going to read a lot of that. And then my second is from chapter 19 and so on. But chapter 18, the point is the malice of King Saul. And then we're going to see the keeping power of God and the covenantal love of God who is our refuge. Those are the three main points. The malice of Saul, the keeping power of God, the covenantal love of God. And so we're beginning with the malice of King Saul. And I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 16, and then the last three verses, starting at verse 28. So let us give heed to God's word. Now remember, we've just seen and heard about David and Goliath, and the great celebration that comes after that, and David's desire that all glory go to the God of Israel. And so we pick up the the narrative at chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. This is David had been speaking to Saul. Jonathan's witnessing all this. And the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him, David that is, as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, that's David, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men at war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. 
As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful all of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. I'm not going to read all the next part, which is the part where David eventually marries Michal, one of Saul's daughters. He does so by obtaining the dowry or the bridal price by warfare against the Philistines. But after he does that and he marries Saul's daughter, pick up the story in verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. May God add the blessing, his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. We see the malice of Saul. His hatred and persecution of David is an example of Satan's malice toward God's people, as well as really the constant hostility and malice of the world to the people of God throughout the history of the ages. This is the frequent experience of Christians in facing the hostility of the world, and we also can make application of it, and we want to do that tonight, in extended times of perplexity and suffering and confusion that aren't directly from persecution, but that are also providential things that the Lord brings in our lives. We see David going through a very difficult time in our text and in chapters 19 and 20, as we will see. Why was Saul so hateful? Well, pretty evident when they return from war and the women start singing their songs in the streets of the town. And I don't think it was intended to be a slight for Saul, but he certainly took it that way, that they were singing about 10,000s for David, but only thousands for himself. And the emphasis, one of the themes that comes out in chapter 18 
if you would carefully read it and mark all the times that it talks about somebody loving David. We're going to look in our third point about the covenant Jonathan makes. We want to save that for the last point. But we see in verse 1, the very first verse, that it says, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And that's emphasized again in verse 3, the same thing. And then further down in verse 16, um, we see that, but all Israel and Judah loved David. The whole nation loved him. And then, as we see, he uh, marries Michal, and that's an understandable kind of love. In verse 20, it says, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. Then in verse 22, we see that it says, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. So all of, all of Saul's servants at the court love David as well. And then finally, we saw in verse 28, that again, it's repeated that Michal loved David six times. David was highly loved. And why was that? Well, that's brought out in the text as well, because the Lord was with David. That's repeated as well. The presence of the Lord in David's life showed up in David's character and who he was. Here was this young man who had risked his life in the battle against the Philistines and Goliath when nobody else would step forward. And here he was, time and again, sacrificially serving for the nation's good, constantly risking his very life for the sake of the nation, which was no small thing to do. I've read a lot of biographies, maybe not a lot, but some, about people like George Washington and uh, Lincoln and and seems like the repeated testimony is that they can't wait when the day of retirement might come to step back from public service because even though it might be glorious and tickles their ambition to some extent, it's really something that is costly to do right and to do well and to do honorably. I think General Eisenhower felt that way when he finally got to go to Gettysburg, maybe you've toured his home in Gettysburg when he could finally put up his feet and rest. But the reason for Saul's malice goes even deeper than envy, I believe. And a key verse that shows us this is verse 12, which is this theme of the Lord being with David. It's repeated in verse 12, verse 14, and then verse 28. But in verse 12, it says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. There was this spiritual sense, this fundamental sense that Saul was aware of, that God was with David, and that God had left him because of his disobedience and his idolatry. And throughout these chapters, as we think about what's described here. And there's a lot of narrative here. As we think about it, the reader wonders at times, why wasn't it obvious to everyone involved that Saul was out for David's life? Why wasn't it obvious that Saul had this deep and settled hostility toward David? And, and the reason that comes out as you read through this, this section is at first, at least, and for some time, everyone, including David himself and 
Jonathan thought that Saul's malice was more of a symptom of what might be seen to be fits of madness, fits of insanity, his ravings, whatever problem Saul had. And the people at court weren't sure about that. I'm sure these days he'd have a complete in-depth psychological evaluation if he would allow that. But we know that it was a spiritual thing in Saul's life at heart. And in chapter 19, we find that David finally gets it. He finally understands that Saul is determined to kill him. And finally, in chapter 20, Jonathan, Saul's son, finally understands that as well. He does it at this climactic point when his father, King Saul, throws the spear at Jonathan, the crown prince, and misses him, of course, because Jonathan doesn't seem to understand that David might take Jonathan's place. So what does Saul do? He tries to kill his own son. That doesn't really make sense. It shows the degree of Saul's fallenness and his anger and his malice. I want us to just have an idea as we look at these chapters, as we skip through them. We've read some of it here already. Imagine how hard it would have been for young David to live through this time. I really tried hard in the last few weeks that I was reading this text over and over again to think about that because historically, whenever I've read this text, I know what's going to happen. We know David is going to be the great king. And even though David had been anointed to be the king and he was given this word from God that he would be the king, it was by faith only that he believed that because these were very harrowing times. Can you imagine having someone in a room that wouldn't be nearly as big as this room throw a spear at you? And then apparently David stayed in the room because he had to evade the spear twice this time. And this wouldn't be the last time. Can you imagine fleeing for your life as we will see? David is supposed to be serving Saul as part of the court. He's been brought, as we know, to play the lyre, the harp-like instrument for Saul as part of his, really, therapy to keep him calm. And he's also, we see, one of the foremost captains in the army. Imagine expecting, having to be expected to be at court and yet have the king trying to kill you. What are you supposed to do with that? The malice of Saul towards David points ahead to the experience of Jesus, the greater David. David was, in this sense, we would call a type of Christ. His life and his kingship foreshadowed Jesus, the great king, the true and ultimate Davidic king. Think of, think of how God was with David, and so his life was so attractive. And people loved him, and they flocked to him, and, and they were ready to follow him. But even more so with Jesus It wasn't just that God was with Jesus. Jesus was God with us, Emmanuel. And think of the perfection of Christ's character and how everyone should have loved him and worshipped him. How attractive, how beautiful Jesus Christ, the Lord, is incarnate, very man, very God. At the same time, 
And we know that the gospel reveals how very attractive Jesus was as a person in his teaching, in his ministry, in his healing, doing acts of kindness, serving others in love, pouring out his life and ministry during his years of ministry. But we also know that at the same time, there was great and unceasing malice set against the Son of God by Satan and all of his hosts, of course, but also by both Gentiles and Jews, that culminating, culminated in the providence of God bringing His Son to the cross so that evil people, leaders of both Gentiles and Jews, put Him on the cross. Christ is the fulfillment of David. And so we see this malice directed at David, at Christ, but also Christians likewise can expect some degree of hostility from the world. Don't we all know that when Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, John fifteen eighteen. And on this note, especially in this month of November that we remember the persecuted church around the world, let us remember our brothers and sisters who are experiencing this malice and hostility in much greater depth than you and I are. I can't help but always stop to think about the experience of Pastor Bob Fu, who was uh, at our missions conference a few years ago and talked about his experience. And a number of you have talked to me about reading his book and how at the time of his conversion in China, um, you get a sense of how difficult and confusing it was for Bob and his wife to experience state-sponsored persecution, to be under surveillance. Try this sometime. Just go about your business at your home or at your job and think what it would be like to have plainclothes policemen in cars outside of your house keeping an eye on you. That would be unsettling. Wouldn't it? You know, again, I read Bob Fu's book and I know what the ending's going to be. Actually, he made it out of there because he spoke at our missions conference. He's here in America now. So we know he got out safe and sound, and there's a great story there. But to live through that, to have everyone you know be afraid to be seen with you for fear of their own safety, that's pretty much what Bob Fu went through for some time. To be thrown into prison. And to know that your wife has also been thrown in another prison and not know how she's doing for weeks and months. Can you imagine how hard it would be to trust the Lord in something like that? Let us pray for the persecuted church. I think of David and his wife. I won't say their names in greater depth because of the recording, but we know that they're in Asia. And we know that they've told us that the government might shut down their work any time or worse. We don't know. And we pray for them. Do not be surprised by the hostility of the world. Maybe for us in the West, it comes only in very minimal ways. But we know it may increase in our lifetimes. And to even go beyond that, apply this principle in the realm of of normal, what we would say, providential hardships and suffering. Uh, Remember that David's experience of victory over Goliath and celebration and rejoicing 
What a great experience that must have been as a young man. Remember that that was really the exception and not the rule. And now we've entered this time. It goes on beyond the chapters that we're looking at here and goes on for chapter after chapter, year after year of David fleeing from Saul. Barely one step ahead of him many times. The malice of Saul. Well, secondly, let us look at the keeping power of God. We turn to chapter 19. And what I'm going to do for the sake of time is summarize the first two-thirds of it and then read the ending of it. Because here we see a number of close calls, but we see God keep David through this, and thus the point, God's keeping power. And we see various ways in which we see God protecting David. In verses 1 through 7, we see Jonathan, Saul's son, is able to reason with Saul which gives a temporary reprieve, but it doesn't last for long. So Saul responds to reasoning at this point, but he won't after this time. Then in verses 8 through 10, we see David again going to war with the Philistines, and as a result, somehow, because of the envy, having to dodge Saul's spear. So David, just with prudence and wisdom, is able to save his own life. And then we see an interesting section in verses 11 through 17 where David flees to his home with Michal. He's a married man. It could have been that that their house was on the outskirts of Gibeah along the wall, something like what Rahab would have had that um, she was able to signal to the spies. But David escapes through a window and is let down because Saul has all his spies and men waiting outside David's house to kill him when the morning comes. And the interesting thing here is that Michal really has to risk her own life because her father is so upset with her and she lies, she deceives, she says that David forced her to do this or that uh, he was threatened her death. We see great irony here in the fact that here is Saul pursuing David. And Saul's enemy, David, is saved by Saul's own family members. He's saved by Jonathan as he reasons with his dad. He's saved by Saul's daughter. What irony. But then we come to David being protected supernaturally by God. And that's the part that I want to read now starting at verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naioth, and it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, The Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naioth in Ramah. And he went there to Naioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. 
And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? We see a clear theme in chapter 19, and really throughout this whole section in 1 Samuel, of the promise of God's protection according to God's sovereign will and the promise of God's presence in David's life and with him. This chapter brings to mind Psalm 23, verse 5, a very familiar text. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I have to wonder if David was remembering incidents like this when he penned that psalm. In the very presence of his enemies, think about these experiences. And David will have more of these close calls in years to come as he flees. Years of being an outcast and living on the run. But what we see here is God's providential hand on David's life. God is with him. And notice that in the midst of all this, David is prudent and he's not presumptuous. He seeks to be wise. David doesn't say, well, I've been anointed as the future king. Samuel anointed me. I know that. So I'm just going to trust God to protect me. So while these agents of Saul are surrounding my house, I'm not going to sneak out the window. I'm going to walk out the front door and say, what do you all want with me? And I'm sure I'll be safe. No, he's prudent. He's wise. He doesn't presume upon God's protecting him without acting as wisely as he can. He's using all of the common sense he can muster, all the wisdom that God would give him to protect himself from Saul's intrigues and Saul's attacks. And in this stressful and difficult time, God upholds David. And I want us to take that application of that point because you and I have the same promise from God in the hardships and adversities of our lives. We might not have agents of the king surrounding our house, but there can be very deep sufferings, as all of us know, in the Christian's walk. And we can declare with Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. In other words, we can be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Whether it is God's will to protect us, they say, We do not know, but our hope is in Him. Or we can say with Paul in Romans chapter 14, where he is talking about living for one another and seeking the other's good. He says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. What a statement to think that of that as our life theme. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. But think especially about David's brief period here described, this brief respite he gets at Ramah and this little uh, outcropping of Ramah, most likely in the fields around that town called Nayoth. No one knows exactly where that is. This brief period of spiritual refreshment that he must have had. Here, God had prepared for Dable a table 
of rich spiritual blessing during his short stay there. And he arrives in verse 18, and it says in the text, he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Can you imagine the unburdening David felt? The wise prophet who had anointed him some time before, listening as David poured out his heart, almost in the, I almost can imagine it, what did you do to me? <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? Look at what's happening. A young man who sought the glory of God, but what was going on in his life? Just think of the blessing to have a spiritual counselor and advisor to be able to pour out your heart to. And don't we treasure that, whether it's to our spouse or whether it's to a friend in the body of Christ or a mentor, to have that opportunity to pour out what we're going through at a period of great stress. And so David tells the prophet his dilemma and what's happening. And then we find that there's a note in verse 20. It says, Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying. Here's the first mention in the Old Testament of this, probably the school of the prophets that must have begun now. And we see it come out again during the lives of Elijah and Elisha. This fellowship this uh, group of obviously like-minded men to David, who was a man after God's own heart. And you have to wonder, is this where David first met Nathan, to whom he would become very close in years to come? What a contrast this would have been, isn't it, to living with the raving king Saul in Gibeah and having this brief stay at Nioth with the school of the prophets who were seeking God, prophesying the word of God. It must have showed David something about the fact that all was not dark in Israel. He must have needed it at that time. And then Saul and his various contingents of soldiers who are sent three sets of messengers sent to take David and bring him back to be killed are stopped supernaturally because as they approach the prophets who are prophesying, they are caught up in this spiritual prophecy. We don't know exactly what this amounted to, but with Saul especially, it's described that it completely disables him for a period of time. And he's, he strips off his clothes He prophesies before Samuel. Notice here, actually the same verb is used at the beginning of chapter 18. Jonathan, the son of Saul, willingly strips off his kingly, princely robe, his armor, and gives them to David as a covenant bond. as part of his loyalty to David. Here, King Saul is forced to do that unwillingly by the power, the supernatural power of the Spirit of God. We're intrigued. We would like to know more. But clearly, God steps in and protects David from Saul's attacks. But it became evident that Saul could not be trusted and David could not go back to Saul's court. He's never going to go back to Saul's court after this. 
And the lesson for us, which applies especially to our times of suffering, is that God strengthened David spiritually in the midst of great suffering. Notice that. David was strengthened in his inner man by Samuel and this holy brotherhood of the company of the prophets during this time. We're not told much about it, but obviously it occurred. And isn't this something of the same kind of spiritual strengthening of faith that the Apostle Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 1? When we see Paul going through afflictions, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Isn't it amazing that this is the Apostle Paul? This is genuine Christian experience, even for the Apostle. Indeed, he goes on to say, We felt that we had received the sentence of death, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then he goes on to talk about the Corinthians helping him by their prayers. You and I do not know what tomorrow may bring, even whether tomorrow we will live or die. We don't know. But because of Jesus Christ and his love for us and his promise to keep us eternally, we know that we can trust him whatever the circumstances might be that arise in our lives. And that brings us to our final point, which is the basis for that assurance. And that is the covenantal love and faithfulness of our God, who is our refuge in adversity. Chapter 20, I'm going to have to summarize a lot of it, but I'm going to read the very end of it to us. Let me summarize it for us this way. David flees from Naioth. He knows he doesn't have much time. Maybe the fact that uh, Saul was temporarily incapacitated enabled him to flee. He doesn't flee further away. He flees back to Gibeah, which is Saul's headquarter location, because he needs to talk to Jonathan, his faithful friend. He goes back to that very vicinity, and he tries to convince Jonathan of his danger. He meets Jonathan in the field somehow. And Jonathan doesn't believe it. He tries to believe it in a sense, but he just, he's had his conversation with his dad. He knows his dad has, has pro- promised that he's not going to hurt David. Of course, Saul is hiding his true intent from his son. So David and Jonathan devise a, a plan to find out if Saul is really set to murder David. And this, this chapter really, is, it made one of the children's books that we used to read our kids because it involved arrows and a child running to get the arrows. It was an interesting story, and you can read it on your own time. But they devised this plan to find out Saul's true intent. And the occasion is the new moon, the typical feast that would occur at the new moon, And Jonathan plans to give an excuse for David as to why he is not at court. He's supposed to be at court at the table with the king. But he knows he can't be there. And so after the first day, the king doesn't say anything. He thinks David might be ceremonially unclean. He's not there. But the second day, Saul is furious. And he demands from Jonathan an explanation. And Jonathan gives the false explanation that David's family in Bethlehem asked him to be there at their feast. It's like he planned to spend Thanksgiving with them, not with us. And Saul knows that it's not true. And he's furious at Jonathan. And he asks Jonathan 
in a rage. Does he want to give the kingdom to David? And he throws a spear at his son, and he doesn't kill him. And the next day, that day and the next day, Jonathan is furious and he fasts. And by the way, Saul's actions with both his son and his daughter show how disruptive a parent can be in a child's life. I can't help but think that Saul's actions with Michal, his daughter, and David in interfering with their young marriage really deeply affected that marriage for years to come. And I can't help but see Saul's anger and then Jonathan's anger in return as a father provoking his son to wrath. These are deep scars that are formed. But Jonathan goes out then on the fourth day, essentially, and tells David what's happened. And we pick up the story in verse 41. I want to read the conclusion to you. Jonathan has shot his arrows. He's told the boy, no further go out, which was the sign that David needed to hear that he had to flee, that Saul was after him in truth, and that Jonathan knew it now. And so we pick up the story, verse 41. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he arose and departed. That's David. And Jonathan went into the city. Go and be at peace. Go in peace. Interesting that in verse 42, Jonathan could say that, that there would be any peace for either of them. Jonathan going back to this crazy palace with his father, David out into the wilderness to begin fleeing. But what we see here brings us to this theme that we see woven throughout chapters 18 and 19 and 20, the theme of covenant and covenant faithfulness, covenant love. In chapter 18, we saw them make this covenant where Jonathan, the crown prince, initiates the covenant and essentially renounces his position as crown prince and transfers that position to David. And that's the significance of Jonathan in chapter 18 taking off his princely robe and his clothes and his weapons. Whether or not Jonathan knew that David had been anointed king, we don't know for sure. The scripture doesn't tell us, but Jonathan clearly believed that it was God's will for David to be king, just seeing God's presence with David. And the the amazing thing is in this covenant between them, this covenant of friendship and loyalty, is that Jonathan embraced the will of God. And Jonathan handed his place over to his chief rival and promised to protect him. Do you realize how countercultural that was? It was totally opposite all the political common sense of the day, which typically involved the almost universal practice of purging, of killing anyone who could be a rival to your kingship. And then there's this word that reoccurs in chapter 18 and elsewhere, that word hesed in the Hebrew, or loyal love, steadfast love, 
faithfulness. It's translated in different ways. I like the way one author put it, describing what it meant. Love gives itself in covenant and then gladly promises devoted love in that covenant. Doesn't it remind you of marriage? Love, when you're dating someone, when you become engaged, love gives itself in covenant. Love longs to be covenanted with the object of love. And then from that covenant, then gladly promises devoted love in that covenant. That's the nature of this covenant of friendship that Jonathan and David had. And really what we see is an illustration here of God's covenant of grace with us, the new covenant that Jesus has purchased for us, laying aside his heavenly robes of glory to keep the covenant for us, to bear the curse which was demanded of God's covenant with us that we had broken. And so the basis of our assurance of God's love and God's presence and God's keeping power is his covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. And just as for Jonathan and David at the end of chapter 20, just as their covenant was really a refuge for them in unsettling times, so God's new covenant with us in Christ is our refuge and the basis for our assurance when we go through unsettling times. It is our hope. It is our life. And so we're able to hear Christ's word to us, peace be with you. My peace I leave with you. How do you live in peace? How did Jonathan and David live at peace? It was, it was on the basis of the covenant and likewise We have peace in difficult times. Well, what does all this mean for you and for me? Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, and we stand in him alone, in Christ alone. We stand in his faithfulness. And I would say that if you've never put your trust in him, believe his word. The covenant of God, the covenant of grace is displayed in the Bible and what Jesus did, what he offers through the gospel. Believe his word. But for believers, what does it look like, I ask, and what does it feel like to go through great experiences of hardship and still trust the Lord? Well, we've gotten a picture of it here, haven't we? Just a glimpse of what it must be like. Not the absence of difficult emotions, not the ability to somehow float serenely over all the stresses and the turmoil of times like that. Yes, we believe that God's peace is our abiding strength and dwells with us. But I would urge us to think of it this way. God as our refuge in whom we constantly and repeatedly seek to abide. With all the stresses, with all the uncertainties, seeking to abide under the shadow of the Almighty, as the psalm puts it. By means of worship, by means of praise, by means of prayer, prayer expressing our trust in him by, I would say, a holy submitting of our lives into his care and keeping, knowing that he is faithful and that he is worthy of our trust. And so this evening, I urge you, whatever your week might have in store for you, seek to walk in that communion 
and abiding trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. His unfailing love for us never ends. Amen. Father, keep us to the end, we pray. Strengthen us. Do your work in our lives as we trust in you. Through Jesus our Lord, we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.